comes from Luke 24, 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Again, welcome. We're going to pray first before we go to the passage this morning, which I'm very excited about because we're continuing our study in Luke 24 of the resurrection, after the resurrection. And, um, and one of the themes that we developed last week on Easter Sunday is that uh, the resurrection means that we get to practice it every day, this side of heaven. Uh, so often, though, we slip into practicing resignation, where we start to settle and we give up and we live practically as if the tomb is not empty. And so today we're going to continue to develop just this vision for our lives where we practice resurrection together and what it looks like, what it feels like, how it really helps us and how it changes us. So I want to encourage you today, if you came here today feeling hopeless, there is hope and there's a hope that promises a change, which is resurrection. So uh, we're going to pray here for a few moments. We'll close by praying Jesus' prayer together, uh, but uh, join me in prayer. Uh, fathers, we begin today, we just come knowing our need uh, and knowing that we want you to help us 
to hear and see in the same way that these two men on Emmaus Road did to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus today. And so I want to encourage you now just to pray quietly for someone next to you to see Jesus, to hear from him today. So take a moment and pray for someone close to you. Now take a moment and pray for me as I'm speaking that I can hear and see our Savior today. Father, we come and pray that you teach us how to pray and help us to pray in the Spirit at all times, to learn how to rejoice always and pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances for this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. So help us to live out what you have outlined for us to live, is to have joy and to have a dependence on you and then to have a sense of deep gratitude. So Lord, you know us well and we need help in experiencing joy and being dependent and then also just being thankful. Uh, Lord, you know how easy it is for us to get squeezed by the world and we end up being people we don't wanna be, but we wanna be people who live out the resurrection and we wanna practice it in all everything we're doing, whether we're at home or at work or in our neighborhood or on the soccer field, Jesus, we wanna practice resurrection, we pray. And so we pray now that you teach us how to pray with Jesus his prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, there's a TV show that Valerie and I are enjoying uh, watching, and last season there was an episode called The Hope That Kills You. Um, in this particular episode, uh, you have the star actor, the protagonist, talking to a couple men, and he's kind of share with them why he's so excited about how things are going to turn around and change and be different, and the more excited he gets, the more glum and sad these two men get and he can't understand why they cannot believe things are going to really be better and uh, there's a woman standing off to the side watching him talk to these two men and she said to him don't you know it's the hope that kills you it is the hope that kills you now, that might sound weird on a Sunday morning, but I think for there's a lot of people around us and out there that have had their hopes dashed, crushed, taken away from them. And so the last thing that they want to hear is that there is hope. So maybe one of the practical ways is to think about somebody who's following a team that's always losing. Um, and uh, what it's like to say, this will be the season, we'll have a winning season or whatever. Now, um, uh, I am an ACC fan, but I remember when Alabama was terrible, you know? Uh, I can remember when I was sitting with somebody at a retreat center up in Flat Rock at the ARP Retreat Center, 
and they had Alabama on their card. They had Alabama this. Now, this is pre-Coach Saban coming to coach Alabama, and they were terrible. And just talking to them, but it was kind of like, we're not giving up. We have season tickets. We're going. Uh, so even though they were not despairing and defeated by their losing seasons, there is a sense where if you have a lot of setbacks and disappointments and frustrations, the very things that you're putting your hope in uh, leave you just hanging. And you're wondering, what is happening to me? Life is passing you by. Other things are happening for people. And the things that you put your hope in are really... Uh, rather than helping you, causing you to doubt everything. But here at what we're gonna talk about this morning, there is a hope which can help us to really believe how things can change and be different. But one of the things that we need to see undergoing are inside of us that keep hope from being what is in this passage because it's what's happening here, is there are three things all of us struggle with. One is fear how fear affects and counteracts hope. The second thing is unbelief, how unbelief affects our ability to have hope. We'll just go in the gospel stories as where Jesus is shocked by their lack of faith. Unbelief is the lack of faith. So if I put before you a challenging situation right now, uh, if you're full of unbelief, you're gonna be critical and cynical. You're going to scoff. You're going to be Scrooge. Bah, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Come on, Clyde. You know, you're not living in a biblical Christian worldview reality. You're making this stuff up or it's just not going to happen. So you experience unbelief. And then the last one is pride. And this is the most difficult one to get at, to find. But by God's spirit and by his grace, he will show you that you're still relying on yourself way too much. So we're going to talk about fear, unbelief, and pride as we go through this. There's a famous preacher in the area that I'm from. He's no longer living. But when I was pastoring my first church up in Winston-Salem, Redeemer Presbyterian, he was on the circuit. His name is Vance Habner. And he talks about how sin affects us. And he had this famous saying, sin blinds. It binds and it grinds. Sin blinds, it binds, and it grinds. And he was uh, so funny to watch him say these things. But as we look at this passage here this morning, we're going to see how Jesus is showing up to help people who are blinded. They're being bound by their disappointment, and they're being ground down by the disappointment of what's happened on Good Friday. Now, when you look at the Road to Emmaus story, some people said it's the greatest short story that's ever been written. Other people talk about living this story. There's a famous scholar named N.T. Wright. He says, you cannot not live enough in the Road to Emmaus because of what it teaches you about a personal relationship with Jesus because it will constantly call you back to first things but to things that will surprise you. Now, one of the things I love about the passage, we're going to highlight some things here. In verse 15, um, they're talking about how full of disappointment they are about everything that's going on. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. I love that little phrase, he draws near. Uh, one of my good friends who's an elder in Winston, 
um, when I'm going through hard times or we're helping people going through hard times, he'll say, the Lord is near. That's his little code phrase of saying, the Lord is near. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you're going through a really hard situation, difficult situation, or your life is just blah, the Lord is near. The Lord is drawing near to us here this morning to reveal himself. And so the next thing you see, which is kind of interesting, is that, uh, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. A lot of times we want Jesus to show up and, and reveal himself to us, but we're being kept from seeing him. Now, this is really hard when we want something to happen, isn't it? Like we're ready for a new pastor. We're ready for this, whatever, but it's being held back. Why? Why would they not be able to see him right away? Well, number one, Jesus doesn't want us to have a quick fix so that we miss out what he wants to do inside of us, which we'll talk about in a second. But it's kind of like a quick apology. Like if I offend you, and uh, early on in our marriage, Valerie's, Valerie's not here today. She's on Oma duty, which is grandmother duty. Um, you know, Valerie would complain about something that I did, and I would just say, well, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, it was a quick apology, but somehow I could tell it didn't satisfy <laughs> what had happened. And it's kind of like a judo technique. I was just trying to get her off my back. So I would say I was sorry fairly quickly, and she'd go, uh, you need to say more. <laughs> we need to have more interaction here so we can build our marriage more on how hurt I am because of what you did. And I go, okay, I get it. I still have to learn this lesson over and over. So just encourage you brothers who are husbands. Um, it's when you can't learn enough and understand enough how to give a meaningful apology to your wife. But in this situation where Jesus could have revealed himself right away and dealt with it, he was holding back. Uh, this week I was counseling with a young woman who's transitioning from uh, college on to graduate school and she is so ready to be married and she has met this wonderful guy and she so thinks he's the guy but he's not into her he's not that interested and she can't understand God why aren't you working in this situation and I had to encourage her again with what we're going to see here God was is using this in her life to keep her from turning to things that quickly will keep her from the very thing she wants, which is to know him better. And whoever her life is with, it'll show up as well. So I, I love the honesty of the text here where it says Jesus doesn't provide a quick fix. And then when you go to first, verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walked? And they stood still looking sad. Um, don't you love, I mean, just look at the, I mean, right here, it's just, it's the honesty, the beauty of this is that, like, I'll be talking to people, and I'm trying to help them to understand the answers that God has for them, and they'll kind of look at me like, hello, <laughs> you see how hard this is, and you're throwing some light on my situation, but they're so sad, um, uh, you can see it in people's eyes a lot because I do a lot of ministry and I work with people. And although they were repeating almost like parrots saying, well, I know God loves me. I know God promises this. I know he does this. But you can see it in their eyes. Uh, 
they're really sad. There's a brother that I'm working with right now who's had just a terrible ordeal with cancer. Uh, he's now in remission, but he lives in the dread and the fear of the cancer coming back. But if you were to meet my friend, and he is a good friend, and I love this guy very much, when I sit with him over a meal or coffee and look at him, his eyes are so sad. So you have to love the reality of the text here is that they stop and they are glum. They are sad. They are depressed. And if you're here today and you feel like internally I'm here, I'm going through the motions, but inside I've stopped. And I'm really, really feeling discouraged and disappointed by what's going on. Hang on, because Jesus is here. And then the next thing is, is what they say, though, is they say, what is this conversation? They stood still, look sad. And then he's, they say, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said things to them, what things? You gotta love that. And he said to them concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And I love that little phrase, he was mighty in deed and word. And wherever the gospel is working, it's going to change how we think, how we live, what's going on. And then verse 21 is the clue here. Verse 21 is, notice what they say in their disappointment, in their fear, unbelief. Uh, they said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. A lot of times, because our hopes are in the wrong places, um, our understanding of how God works and what he's going to do is not what he's going to do at all. Because here's what many of us feel like, is if God will just change my circumstances, if things will change, if there will be this or that external to me, then things are going to get better. It's going to It's going to happen but they are missing it all together because their idea of being redeemed was to be free from the oppression of Rome, being out from under that to return to this great reign of David, the Davidic king that they thought the Messiah would be. They were totally misreading not only the room but the situation because their idea of Jesus redeeming their story was not what he was going to do. Uh, and so as we continue on here, it's here that Jesus comes to meet them because they're blinded by their misunderstanding of who he is and what he's come to do. They're bound uh, uh, by just this thing, this reality that it's, it's, not, it's not happening. And then they're being ground down by feeling so hopeless. So again, what we can say in being honest about being the church is a lot of times in the church, our churches become sort of dead in their lack of confidence in what God can do. And so the idea that God can do the impossible, the idea that God has given us the power of resurrection, what's taken over is God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power, and that power is the power of the resurrection and a love and self-control, a lot of times we feel out of control, we feel very self-centered and defensive, and we have enemies um, right now in the church. So right now I'm doing uh, 
uh, a study with a guy who's mentoring a group of us on how to lead churches through renewal. And I know uh, you guys won't be shocked when I tell you this because it doesn't happen here at North Cross, but it does happen in other churches where people end up having people in the church they don't like. So part of our training is what do you do when people in a church have an enemy list? They're people they don't talk to, they don't like, they dismiss, they avoid. Now it's easier to do if you're in a bigger church, but when it happens, it's so deadly. It is so deadly. And so what's going on here is, is that, but what, what's going on when you don't see that change? I mean, what, what, what happens when a church allows a church to coexist where people don't really love each other the way Christ loves them? So the love is there, but there's just no power. Now, one of the ways you can know a church has a lot of power, and we're studying a praying life, it's the quality and the character of the prayer life of the community. So when you're practicing resurrection, we want to pray, we want to pray together, and we want to begin to interact with each other in such a way that what we're going to see here really begins to happen, that the tomb indeed is empty and Jesus is risen and things are really, really changing. But this idea of the false hope about what the church is or could be is best captured in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. And here's one of the just temptations about being in any church. Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Life Together, talks about people get in the church and go, this will be the church. This will be the group of people. And they impose on this church a false understanding idea of how the church is going to change their life and be this and be that. And so they impose a false kind of hope on the church, which leads to real disappointment, and it crushes people. And he talks about it so well in this um, book, um, A Life Together. But what we're going to see now is that rather than being blinded by a false understanding of who Jesus is, what does it mean to see him? What does it mean to be set free by him? And what does it mean to be secure and safe? And who he is. Now, if you were to ask me if I could go back to any time in the life of Jesus, I would love to go back then because from the day of his resurrection till 40 days later, he is alive on earth as the resurrected Christ. And you know what he's doing? He's leading Bible study. <laughs> He's teaching them how the scriptures are all about him. So when we read here in Luke 24, notice what he says in 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart. Now let's just think about that for a second. Is When you're foolish, you've lost your ability to see the value of the scriptures to your story. Now, if we did a little survey here, a quick survey today, how many of you have been in meaningful interaction with God's Word this week in a way that it's fed you, thrilled you, challenged you, and changed you? You see, they've lost their confidence and lack of confidence in what the Word really says because they have misread what His redemptive work is all about. You're foolish, I'm foolish, when we say, I, I really, you know, I need to pray. I need to listen to some great podcasts. There's a ton of great Christian books out there to read. There's lots of good stuff that points you in the right direction. 
but this is the very thing that will sustain you and feed you and help you. We don't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen? I mean, we, that's how we really come alive, is the truth of what the word is. And so what we see Jesus modeling here is that he calls them foolish because they misunderstood and they missed out because they haven't seen in the, what the word says. Because he says in verse 26, was it not necessary? No, he says, oh foolish ones, I missed the last thing. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Um, one of the things I could say to myself, to you today, is that everything we need is right here in the scriptures. Everything we need is here revealed to us. And do we believe that everything here is all we need? All that the prophets have spoken is this. Remember when the father's interacting with the older son, and the older son won't come into the party, is working hard to try and prove his worth to the father, hold on to his inheritance. The father comes to him and says, everything I have is yours. Now, does it feel like to you, does it experience to you, is that everything I need, everything I want, everything I dream about is right here. It's revealed here in a way that I live in abundance. I live with what? I live with a sense of the power of the resurrection because I can't wait to see how it all plays out. I've been given a script. You've been given a script. You get to live out the wonders of the gospel. We get to live out the wonders of the gospel together. And I'll tell you, most of you here, because you've tasted it, there's nothing more exciting, more thrilling to be in community around what God has promised to do for his people. But you figure that out by studying together, praying together, living it out together. But uh, Jesus said, everything you need is in, in the scriptures. And number two, he says, and it was necessary that Christ had to die. Now, here's where the good news of the gospel fits in this morning. The good news is that Jesus had to die so that you and I would not misread and miss the hope of our redemption. We were convinced Jesus that Jesus would redeem us, but they missed out on the necessary work that he had to do, which is to die in our place and give us the gift of his righteousness so that the way we see ourselves is that we see ourselves the way he sees us. We are excited about living in his story. So when you're excited about living in his story, then all of a sudden, everything that we see going on here is like, wow, this is for me, this is for us. So are you living in Jesus' story for you? Are you living in his story? And here's how you know you're living in his story. You'll hear his voice. You'll hear him speaking. You'll see him. And you'll see him revealing himself to you in ways that your imagination will catch fire. You'll begin to have a way of seeing what he's doing and how he's doing it and your role in that that you go, I cannot wait to get into that. I cannot wait to go call on this person. I can't wait to send them a meaningful email, text, to encourage them, to invite them to come pray with our small group. However it plays out, it becomes so real to you that it addresses, first of all, our fear. We haven't been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, 
a power to trust that God is working on our behalf and for other people. The second thing, we've been given this power to address our unbelief. Now again, remember that where Jesus gets discouraged and upset, he can't believe that they have no real faith. So one of the ways that my mentor, I don't know why I'm playing with this, it's not working. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the things that my mentor used to uh, talk to us about is, as young ministers, he said, my fear is you'll lose your courage and you'll stop believing that God can change anybody in any situation. So let's, let's just play that out for a second together. Because we're in a situation where what happens to the two men on the Emmaus Road totally turns them upside down and turns them around. So they've walked seven miles. Now they're going to go back seven miles because they can't wait to share the joy of what they found. So let me ask you, is there a person in your life that you feel like cannot change? Uh, is there a situation in your life you believe won't change? Um, and then my mentor would say, where's your confidence in what Jesus can do? Because no one and no situation is impossible for God. Because what happens to us is as soon as you start believe, oh, he'll never change, she'll never change, what happens is that's a mirror back. It's playing back to us. This is where unbelief starts to grow. But... What does it look like when we begin to believe that the promises that are revealed through the great prophet king, uh, Jesus, are going to come true for us, but can come true for someone else? It changes our whole demeanor, our whole excitement, and our realization that what I want, what I need, what I desire for them uh, is possible because of who Jesus is, because the tomb is empty. <laughs> Because he's risen from the dead. He is getting ready to do the impossible. But if there's someone you've written off, maybe God's ready to write them in. If there's some situation that you've given off, maybe God is ready to do something. Now, this is really hard when it's very painful, when you've seen years of neglect and all kinds of hurt. But this is where I need encouragement. I need to be in the Word. I need help. I need people to coach me up to say, don't give up. And that's one of the things that Jesus talks a lot about, to pray and do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Now, if we had more time this morning, I'd love to tell you stories where people I've prayed for for a long time finally turned the corner. Or to pray for situations that you would say, that is impossible. And yet, I have lived through it long enough to know and with God long enough to say, nothing is impossible for God. And I've seen unbelievably dark, dismal, hopeless situations where God has turned it around. And so what we see here is that when Jesus is, opens their eyes, as he's explaining these things to them, they don't really understand it until he breaks, breaks the bread and then they get it, is they go, wow, wow. And then they're so excited. And that's what practicing resurrection looks like. So when the gospel's running, when resurrection's working in your life, you're filled with expectancy. You can't wait to see what God's going to do. So let's look at it day to day. Tomorrow is a Monday. You go back to work. You go back to school, whatever. 
And what does it look like for you to walk into your school, walk into your place of work, get on the airplane, make your trip, and go, I can't wait to see how God is going to work today. That's practicing resurrection. Or if your children are having a difficult time and you're praying for them and you turn the corner and it's Monday, is to really trust God is working for my children. He is doing what I could never do for them because he loves them. They're the sheep of his pasture as well. They're covenant people. They're people that he, he really wants to pour into them. And my role is to pray and to wait and to show them, by the way I listen to them and love them, that there is a Savior that wants to help them. And then it gets so, so amazingly excited. So this idea of everything we need uh, was necessary for him to die uh, for us so that we would be free is this idea of being freed from a self-centered way of living to being Christ-centered way of living and then not to be uh, trapped in a selfishness, but to begin to see, and here's the real key thing, is to be freed from your pride. Now, one of the biggest challenges, um, you know, in working with people, and I work with people, and I could tell you uh, my own story, so I'm tempted to do that, but I'm going to, again, just say to you, I've seen God do it for me, is the biggest hindrance in your story right now to living the life that God's called you to live is your pride. That's your biggest problem. You got fear? Absolutely. Do you have unbelief? Absolutely. But the biggest challenge, and this is what C.S. Lewis talks about, and people throughout the history of the church say, until somebody who follows Jesus really wrestles with their pride and how it affects and shapes them, they're going to have a hard time practicing and enjoying the resurrection daily in their life. So we all need help here. We all need um, God to show us how to address that. So let me make a go unplug for you here for a second and help you see how real it is. Oswald Chambers, most of you know, his famous book, my, His Upmost for uh, My Highest, is, um, or My Upmost for His Highest, I got that turned around. Uh, my Upmost for His Highest uh, is, says that in each one of us, there is a little, I mean, deep commitment to maintaining independence. Uh, and when you know the gospel's working, you want to become dependent. You want to stop being self-reliant, self-sufficient. And here's one of the ways that you can see that popping up is you begin to realize how selfish you are. How you can use a lot of good things, but you're really protecting your selfishness. Like my two big idols are comfort and convenience. You know, I, I love organizing my life so I'm comfortable. After church today, I'll drive back to Winston-Salem and watch the golf tournament. Uh, if you text me or call me, I'm not going to be happy, <laughs> okay? Because I'm comfortable. Don't do that, David. So anyway, I can so some of you already figured this out. But um, is that I try and structure my life so I can control the outcomes of what I want to do when I want to do it versus being open to having my life interrupted, disrupted, so that I might help people and show people the love Christ has given me. Wow. Well, here, when they uh, have their eyes open, as Jesus would uh, let us see him today, 
is that I want to encourage you um, that there's so much hope in the empty tomb and the resurrection. First of all, to help us overcome our fear. Secondly, to help us not be people who are filled with unbelief, but are filled with hope. And people who are not so full of pride. Because here's the mark of a prideful person. They have so little love. Uh, Jesus said, he who's forgiven much loves much. Uh, a prideful person doesn't see their need for forgiveness or ask for it. Uh, much less, they'll, they'll want you to ask them to forgive them, but they're not asking you to forgive them. And so pride kills love. But the power of the resurrection is it helps us repent of our pride so that when we begin to love people, people see a power coming from, from us that they say, that has to be what God is like. That is, that is amazing. And some of you have tasted that, and I want to invite you to more of it. But for some of you, you've never come to the place where you realize being a Christian is not about me being put in a better situation, a better family, a better school, a better job, whatever. Being a Christian means is that I need to be in relationship with Jesus because he wants to save me from myself. And the misery of living my life praying this, my kingdom come, my will be done. And my friends, today, if you're ready, there's such joy and freedom and resurrection. If you'll pray, learn how to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this beautiful story of people who are so lost, uh, finding that you draw near and you speak to them and you teach them and you help them. And we want to be those people who are set free to believe nothing is impossible with you. And we pray that that would come true uh, at North Cross for the needs for a new pastor particularly, but all the things that are going on that are represented in every heart life that represents tremendous needs that only you can meet and fill. So Jesus, help us today, we pray, um, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.